Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the State of Play podcast, episode 54. I am your host this time, Matt Santangelo. You guys can follow me on Twitter, at Matt underscore Santangelo. In the, I guess, co-host chair, if you will, it's Pet Berisha. Of course, you guys are familiar with him. Martino is a little bit tied up at the moment right now, so it's just us two. But we are not alone, as you can tell, Pet, um, which if you want to introduce our, our, our guest here, by all means, go for it. Uh, well, yeah, first of all, glad to be back. I haven't been on the pod for two or three weeks. I, you, you guys heard me uh, speaking to Andrew Magnin from uh, Ask Blog, which was an absolute honor. It was awesome to have him on uh, a couple of weeks back. Mm-hmm. That's one of our most downloaded episodes ever. And August is our most listened to month since the inception of the State of Play. So I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, thank you very much, everyone, for all the support. We really appreciate it. But the big guests keep on rolling. And today we've got Sam Tai from BR Football. How are you doing, mate? Mate, I'm good. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for asking and thinking of me. And uh, it's a pleasure to join you, boys. It's an absolute you know, pleasure having you on, someone of your profile stature in the kind of football journalist or media game. Why don't you tell listeners who don't know much about you a bit more about you? Yeah, it's actually quite difficult to explain. <laughs> <laughs> so I work, I work for Bleach Report, which um, I guess if you listen to State of Play Pod, you probably, you've probably come across BR Football in one shape, way or form uh, over the last six or seven years. I've been with that company since, uh, since 2012, writing, uh, podcasting, recording sponsored adverts, doing all sorts of stuff, helping the social team, building graphics, doing live shows, like wh- whatever they ask me to do, in whatever form content comes they ask Sam, can you do it? And I invariably, I say yes, because I have to, because it's my job. Um, and apart from that, I've held it, I do a, a couple of other things on the side, but the most notable one would be I, I write for the Southampton Football Club website and for their match day program, doing their tactical analysis. So tactics used to be my absolute forte and have softened my stance on it a little bit. Obviously, I still keep a keen eye on the X's and O's, but with BR, it's, it's kind of about the big names and the big themes, and the big images and the big moments. So uh, I'll often be talking about Neymar a little bit more than I probably want to, and definitely <laughs> more about Ronaldo and Messi than I want to. So when I get to speak to you guys and come on these different mediums, and it gives me a chance to, to freshen things up a little bit and talk a little bit outside the box. I really, I really enjoy that because I've left that behind a little bit. So I always enjoy these little ones. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much for for coming on. I mean, uh, it's uh, as I said, a pleasure to have you on. Uh, as as you mentioned, definitely a podcast not of the stature of BR football ranks, but maybe we are going to talk about uh, you know go in depth on some more niche things. But speaking of not very niche things, first and foremost, we probably have to speak about the Champions League final, don't we, Matt? Oh, absolutely. I think you know there's a, there's a quick one. Obviously, different format this year. I think there's been a little bit of a this huge debate going on as to whether or not they like the one game in elimination format. Of course, the final has always been a one game sort of situation. And obviously we know the outcome of it at the time of recording here is with Bayern Munich becoming the champions one zero over PSG. Now we can go on and on about, you know, the missed chances in under Herrera and his quotes in the post-match, because I think he was very honest and, and very raw in his assessment of how things kind of transpired for PSG. But uh, Sam, I guess give me give me your initial reaction to how the final went down, or or maybe just in general, maybe Bayern and PSG's journey to the final, and ultimately the outcome of it. Well, I mean, I think I've been saying since about February that 
Bayern are the best team in the world. So it's nice when the team that you think are the best end up being crowned as the best, I guess. Um, they have felt like this, the best team in the world for, yes, yeah, you know, three or four months. They felt pretty unstoppable. I mean, obviously they're unbeaten in the entire year and only one game they've played wasn't a win. And that was the nil-nil against Leipzig all the way back in, in January or February. And to be fair, they battered them in the first half and it was only Upper Meccano that kept them out single-handedly. So it's nearly been a clean sweep of wins all the way through to basically the end of August, which is absolutely remarkable. And they've won all 11 Champions League games, right, that they've played this mm. season. They probably would have won all 13 had they been allowed to play all 13. Uh, Gnabry and Lewandowski have scored a ton of goals. The defence has sharpened up throughout the year. They really do feel like the perfect team. And Hansi Flick has, has managed to produce a, a system that it feels... It feels like it teeters on the edge of beatable at times, but ultimately proves unbeatable. It has this kind of charm to it, doesn't it? Where you think you're probably going to get a bit, oh, oh, there could be a bit of space there. Oh, I might have a... No, 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 no. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. For some reason, Bayern always win under Hansi Flick. And the, the, the fine-tuned system that he's put in place, the way he's unlocked these players, you know, we talk about Alfonso Davies uh, emerging, Goretzka finally getting a role, all these things, but you've got Kimmich moving positions and excelling wherever he goes. You've got Müller back to his best, Neuer back to his best, Bertang back to like senior professional football standards because for a while he genuinely dipped under those. <laughs> David Alaba being remodeled as a, as a centre-back in a back four. I know he played in a back three under Pep, but this feels quite new to me. Everything he's touched turns to gold. It's been remarkable. So it's no surprise that they win the final. I feel a little bit bad for PSG because I actually think they edged it on the night. As we know, they missed mm. all their chances. <laughs> but Bayern, ultimately, when you look at the season as a whole, or at least 2020 as a whole, they feel like really worthy winners. And there's something inside me that's always like, yeah, this feels right. When the best team win the Champions League, it feels right. It feels proper. And it's not only the kind of starters that Hansi Flick has had an amazing impact on, it's, it's the rotation options as well. You know, if you look at Ivan Perisic and Coutinho, who might not be the first names on the team sheet, even Kingsley Coman, who, who shone in that final against PSG, those guys haven't always been first choice. I mean, Benjamin Pavard, you saw him on the bench kind of banging against the glass with, uh, you know, the most passioned supporter, <laughs> it seemed, in the ground. All of these guys played a, a really big part and when they do come on the pitch they play as well as like anyone on the pitch so he's kind of created this culture at Bayern that you know as you mentioned Sam they didn't play that well on the night PSG probably were overall the better team but the one thing you do get and I think McManaman for all his terrible commentary ac across this <laughs> Champions League kind of <laughs> campaign he did say one thing which was relatively insightful which was this team works first and plays second and you do see that with Bayern they work extremely hard under a Hansi Flick and above all that's kind of what won them the game they kind of just ground out those first 60 minutes and then they had to play well for 20 minutes from 60 to 80 and that was the game and uh, you know it, it's it's refreshing to see someone who I guess didn't have that big a, a coaching resume do so well at a big club. Yeah, so McManaman may have said something smart there, but later on he said, um, what has Hansi Flick, Flick done, to, done to these guys? I don't know how he's done it. I think he's just made them really happy. And that was his total <laughs> analysis of exactly what Hansi Flick had done to rejuvenate Bayern Munich. I think he's just made them happy. So it's, it, you take the good with the bad with Maka, unfortunately. It's been, it has been a bit difficult at times, I know. Bayern's depth is unreal. And 
contrast that to PSG's depth, uh, where all of their money seems to have been sunk into you know eleven players more or less, and the, the options they're bringing off the bench, then they're, they're not the best. Like Draxler was quite poor, mm. to be honest, when he came on. That the Herrera for Draxler sub wasn't a good one. Chupo Moting came on. Obviously, I know he scored a couple or, or had a big impact, sorry, against Atalanta, but we know he's not a great player. It was a panic substitution, on. wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I got to the 55th minute and I was like, Icardi yeah. needs to be on this pitch yeah. right now. I got to the 65th minute and I was like, Icardi should have been on 10 minutes ago. What the hell is he doing? He never came yeah. on. It's like he forgot he existed. Now, I'm not Icardi's biggest fan, not by a long shot. I, I don't, as a personal preference, I don't really like strikers that only score goals and do almost mm-hmm. nothing else. It's just a personal stylistic thing. Everybody likes different players. But Icardi is the epitome of that. And so he, I, I never quite take to him. But in a situation where you are one goal down, <laughs> 25 yeah. minutes to go in a Champions League final, and you just need someone to put the ball in the net because Neymar and Mbappe haven't managed it, turn to Icardi. <laughs> it, it, it baffled me a little bit, to be honest with you. And one of the one of the, the 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 themes to the final really was that Tuchel did a really poor job of managing his substitutions, mm. and the more he tried to chase the game, I think the further away from him it got, which is a real shame. But it's down it, it's partially down to the depth that Bayern have accumulated versus what PSG have done. So, one hundred percent, I think you know the one thing the and as Ander Herrera kind of chronicled the, the entire thing in his his post match comments. You know, that this was the proper game for a player like Acardi, right? Because they had the chances created. It wasn't just a matter of, well, we need that final ball. We need that final, you know, bit of flair in the final third to ultimately unlock Bayern and make that goal happen. It was, you know, the five to six, seven chances that, for whatever reason, Mbappe and Neymar just couldn't quite capitalize on. And those are the balls and those are the chances that Icardi has made a career off of. You know, when he was at Samp and then he was at Inter, I usually tell a lot of people, you know, if you want to kind of know what type of striker Icardi can be or is, he had a performance with Inter against Samp you know, three, four years ago where he had 14 touches of the ball, but he had three to four goals. Like he's a, a type of striker where you give him one chance, he can probably kill you and make you pay. And that's exactly what this game was calling for, as you, as you mentioned, Sam. So the way I look at that one is, is PSG, this was their year. Given the format, given their history of mm. being a team that can't quite get over the hurdle when it comes to the knockout rounds, if you will. We all know the, the Barcelona from, from many years ago. This felt like the year to do it. Now, we obviously know Bayern Munich are very strong, and they were the favorites, and they have to be respected as that. But PSG had this one, and mm. that's going to be probably the toughest thing that they leave you know, moving forward is – are they a team that can rebound from this mentally? Are they, do they have that sort of makeup where they can take this sort of defeat and grow from it? Or are they a team that can maybe is going to be regressing a little bit? And that's going to be my biggest focus with the quick turnaround to the new season for them. And then obviously as we gear up for the, for the next Champions League campaign. But just speaking on Bayern Munich a little bit myself, and I'm going to throw it to you guys as well. Robert Lewandowski. I mean, he was in a final previously of Borussia Dortmund. They lost to Bayern Munich. He's able to come back here and cap off what was a, in my opinion, Ballon d'Or caliber slash Ballon d'Or winning season. The goals in the Bundesliga, the treble, top score in the Champions League ahead of Ronaldo and Messi the first time, I believe, since 2006, 2007, when Kaká was the leader, if I'm correct. I think Optopost did that. Talk to me about the season he's had and the reaction that you got from him and his reaction of winning this sort of trophy, because this seemed like the one thing that he genuinely was missing in terms of the public 
and the view they have of him as being like a big game player. Yeah, so I think like I was starting to get a bit worried that Lewandowski was never going to win this trophy, and um, I actually, I mean that I was genuinely worried. I spend probably too much time given that I'm attached to none of these players personally, worried about whether or not they'll win a Champions League. <laughs> the amount of time I've spent worrying about whether Buffon's ever going to win it is ridiculous, right? There's, I've never met him, but I'm worried about it all the time. And Lewandowski is, is one of those players. I hate it when players' careers go unfulfilled in certain areas like that, great players like that. And uh, on BR Football, we put together a little post of, of players that, that never won the Champions League, got great players that never won it. And some of the names are shocking. Like, and it starts with, you know, the original Ronaldo. And, and you know, it probably ends with Zlatan. And it's like, yeah. how do these guys not do it? And Lewandowski felt, yeah. I mean, before 2020, you know, end of, last, uh, sorry, end of last year, early this season, he felt like one of those names destined for that list. Not what he envisaged when he left Dortmund for Bayern Munich. No chance, but... Yeah, like 55 goals, is it, for the season? Mm. I mean, he scores in basically every game he plays. I, I know he didn't score the most important goals uh, against Chelsea. Uh, and then later on in the semi-final, well, he got like the third goal. And against Barcelona, he got like the eighth goal. And I, <laughs> I, I saw some people kind of holding that against him a yeah. little bit, which like ultimately when you when you when you play for a team with such a high powered potent attack it doesn't matter where the goals come from right it doesn't matter and with Lewandowski it's not just about the goals as we know he's he's always been sort of a movable target man a good hold up player a great link player and some of the one two foot one two and one touch football Bayern play in and around the opposition box or have done for the last month or so in Lisbon. Uh, bouncing off Muller, playing one-twos, bouncing off Goretzka, flicking the ball around the corner for his midfield runners. It's complete forward play. It's, it's, it's as good as it gets. It is such high quality and he garnishes it all with goals. Now he hit the post against PSG and missed another chance. I didn't get the goal, but the team won. He was instrumental in, in quite a few moves, as he always is. I have nothing but respect for Lewandowski. I think he's the, the best number nine, a continual difference maker, a consistent player, and, and the opposite of Icardi in, in terms of what he brings to a team, what he can give you. He can put you on his shoulders. And I love that in a forward. I love someone who will take that responsibility. And did you see how hard he was working up to the 90th minute, 92nd minute, 93rd minute? He ran his socks off. Like he was pressing like a maniac. He, he wanted this so hard, as you said, Matt, and I was just really pleased for him. And I saw that photo this morning uh, with him in bed <laughs> for the Champions League trophy. I was like, yeah, you deserve that, man. You've earned it. He's had a phenomenal season, hasn't he? I mean, to score 55 goals and not be named Messi or Ronaldo is, it almost seems like a more impressive feat than when Messi or Ronaldo do it, doesn't it? It's, it's mm. in a weird, weird way. But uh, just go, you know, that chance that he had, it just wraps, it just, uh, for me, that encapsulated what Lewandowski is. It was like such a difficult bobbling ball at speed, controls us with his wrong foot and just like doesn't, doesn't touch the ball after that. The next thing you see, pivot, strike against the post. And like if there was like one bit that captured what type of striker he is, I genuinely think that's it. It's like you're giving him not the best ball in the world. He's controlled it phenomenally and it's just like bang. And it's kind of like having that Akadi level finishing ability and not needing that many touches in the ball but also being such a massive asset outside of the box as well for his team but I did want to touch on Akadi, just rewind a slight bit because I, I thought the same thing as you Sam I thought why is he not on the pitch but not only just for the need of a goal but I thought that 
Neymar at points in that game looked so, so isolated and we know he, he didn't have a good game. I think he gave away the ball 27 times according to some providers, which was absolutely ridiculous. Mbappe, again, had the best chance of the game, didn't put it away. I, I do genuinely think that if you had a Cardi up there and you had those three in Mbappe, Di Maria and Neymar behind him, actually having those half spaces behind the striker, I, I really do think that they would look a bit more effective because whenever Neymar did pick up the ball in the final third, he looked really dangerous. It was just a shame that Tuchel didn't see that and didn't act quicker. But um, it, it was a weird one. It was a weird. It was really weird not to see Icardi get even a minute, but to see, you know, a clearly very, very unfit Marco Verratti, who I think every time he touched the ball, his touch was off and he got closed down by either Goretzka, one of the wide guys, or the striker. It, it just seemed very weird. And it seemed like... Um, in a weird way, Tuchel would actually bow down to the egos, to the bigger players in the dressing room, to the likes of Verratti. Um, I think, I don't know, it just felt like Icardi needed to get on that pitch, not only to try and get the goal, but to try and free up those three as well. Yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you. I, what, what also struck me is that they've just made him permanent for a, a, you know, a fee of around 60 million euros. I mean, how's that for a kick in the teeth? You know, you, you're there now, you sign the contract, you're there for three or four years. Uh, and apparently they don't really rate you very much. <laughs> it's it's a bit it's a bit of a strange one, isn't it? Where you're not brought on when you need that goal. I feel like Tuchel, he has the capacity to do this sometimes. I think we, we talk. We, it's not going to be a, a strange concept to anyone listening for, for me to say. Look, Tuchel sometimes gets his subs wrong and sometimes overcomplicates things. And you know, earlier in the season, he managed to find a pattern where he was able to play all four of Neymar and Di Maria uh, and Icardi and Mbappe in a, in the fantastic four front four. Uh, it was a 4-2-4-ish formation and it had you know, Idrissa Gay in the middle doing a lot of running to make it work. And I can, understand, I can understand why he wouldn't want to go for that from the start against Bayern because they would smother you in midfield. <laughs> like playing 3v2 or 2v3 in their case in midfield against this pressing machine would be a mistake. Um, but then we also saw against Atalanta when Icardi did start and Neymar played as a sort of freeish role gliding into the middle and through the, through the centre. Icardi got pushed out to the wide right a lot and he barely had an impact on the game. And he came off actually and they were a lot better. So Icardi look, looks like basically Icardi because of what he, he's, his role evaporated against Atalanta because Neymar was, was roaming wherever he wanted to go. That is essentially what's led to, all right, well, you're not on the pitch. But why he never came on is, is a completely different thing. Again, we come back to that central point. <laughs> you're making the chances, you're just not scoring the goal. Well, luckily, that's the one thing Icardi does. Yeah, I, I think, you know, uh, it's, it's what it is with Icardi. You, you know what you get, and you've made a, a lot of good points there. I, I just, it, it does baffle me. I do want to ask one question. One question. I think I tweeted this out. Is Manuel Neuer the best goalkeeper of all time? So. <laughs> well, I'm not 150 years of age. Uh, <laughs> I, unfortunately, well, I, never no saw, I never saw Lev Yashin in his prime, so I couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> no, I think, I think if we, we assume that, um, that, that football players simply get better with time. Every decade or so, we make huge advancements and goalkeepers look, to be fair, like when quarantine hit, um, I watched some of the official World Cup films back. Um, so on Amazon Prime, in England, but I don't know anywhere else, they've got like official FIFA films of, of mm. every World Cup going back to like 1980. All about two hours old, really good, like really engaging stuff. And when there's no football, it was a bit of a godsend. You go back to even poor oh, 2000 and yeah, 2002, the goalkeeping standards are a 
joke. They are so bad. And it was genuinely, you were watching these films and you're like, all right, so there were four good goalkeepers in all of world football in 2002. It was basically Oliver Kahn, Buffon, Casillas, and Bartes. And even Bartes was a bit up and Even down. Bartes wasn't very good. Yeah, like... so, you're like, and, but then, <laughs> so it, was, it was baffling to watch. I went back and watched 98. Seaman was so slow so slow against Argentina in that game against England. So I think it's probably fair to say that the crop of goalkeepers we've got in front of us right now are the best we've ever seen in the last 20 years because the standards back then were just totally different. They're much better athletes. And so Neuer's got, he's got a case. I mean, I'm not sure that he's the best goalkeeper right now. Mm. I don't think he's better than Alisson. Mm. And um, to be honest, if we were recording this before Barcelona lost 8-2, I'd say Tostegan's probably mm. better. But Tostegan had probably the worst game of his career uh, against, against Bayern Munich. And that's not just because he considered eight goals. It's because he couldn't pass to any of his teammates either. Um, so I don't think he's the best right now. But in terms of like, tr- like true legacy, uh, if you combine you know, the, the two Champions League victories, the, 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 the domestic dominance with a World Cup, I think it's a really fair shout. And I can't think of anyone really apart from this, the standard sort of Casillas or Buffon or maybe Oliver Kahn to really mm. stand up against him. And the other thing about him, I suppose, is the intangibles, the leadership. And also, it just feels like he's got the... I think he's the only goalkeeper in the world that when he makes a save, right, or does something quite like, oh my God, how's that happened? It saps the energy in the other team. Like, it just felt like when Neymar, he saved Neymar and you were like, how has he done that? It's like his trailing it's left hand. Like it's it's uh, so deflating. Yeah. It's like when Lionel Messi nutmegged uh, James Milner at the New Camp, everyone was, every City fan at that point and every um, player uh, and every coach in the dressing room must have been like, you know, we've got no chance here. I truly believe that Manuel Neuer is probably the only goalkeeper ever that when he makes a save, deflates the other team to that level and I've seen it myself you know as an Arsenal fan I remember Danny Welbeck being on on goal through on goal albeit Danny Welbeck isn't the best finisher in the world and he tried to chip Neuer and he literally caught it with one hand and kind of patted it down to the ground and you just (laughs) you just saw the stadium just be like we are not going to win this game Um, or we're not going to win these two legs and I truly think that is kind of like if you're going to define something that time someone as great or something as great it's sometimes the intangibles and i just think you know what other keeper does that that really like knocks the stuffing out of you it's hard I mean, to think it's funny you, you you raise an example from from arsenal there presumably that was at the emirates um, yeah. and i remember being at the emirates for uh, what was arsene wenger's last european game in the end is when you guys lost to atletico madrid in mm, europa i was there as well and so jan oblak <laughs> was just on fire oh my God, that yeah. whole night. And I walked out of the stadium and met up with one of my friends who was an Arsenal fan. He was in the stands. I was in the press box. I said, what do you think? He goes, he didn't know their goalkeeper's name, right? He's a fairly casual, <laughs> he does, he's a fairly casual fan, but he knows his football. He just doesn't pay attention to the, the Atletico Madrid starting eleven. He just came out and he went, their goalkeeper is amazing. I went, yeah, Jan Oblak is pretty good. Yeah, he's probably top, <laughs> top three in the world, maybe the best. He was like, we just couldn't get anywhere. I just couldn't get past him. I just didn't feel like at any point we were going to score. Mm. And it's, it's, that, it's that kind of effect. Um, mm. And actually, you, I think you make a good point on Neuer there. And I would say that Oblak actually has the similar mm-hmm. effect. Matt, any thoughts on this goalkeeper <laughs> conversation? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think I, I tweeted something out. I, t- I tweeted something out about it to just rank them. Like it was a hard like rank: Casillas, Neuer, Buffon. You can throw legacy in there. You can throw intangibles. You can throw you know you know qualities. All those sorts of things. And 
and you look at Neuer and the fact that he's somewhat in a way like trend transcend transcended his position in a, in a way I'm not saying he's the first goalkeeper to be his way and do it his way but at the same time the way he plays the way he sort of commands the box in so many different aspects and elements of the game like if you're Bayern players I think in many ways, it allows a guy like Alaba to maybe play uh, a, a different way centrally than he does in, in his normal positions. You know, you have guys like Kimmich who's able to translate all over the field and, and play more comfort. Like, it's something that kind of trickles down as a ripple effect on the rest of the squad, knowing the guy that you have in, in net is, is that good. And I think that's the way I look at it, and the way I observe goalkeepers now is we're all so infatuated with how goalkeepers play with their feet and they can do all these sorts of things. And at the end of the day, it comes down to just making the save. Like the last line of defense, being able to stonewall a team and, and ultimately shut them down. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Milan fan here, and I can see with Gigi Donnarumma on a different level, different scale, but how awful sometimes the defense is and how he's able to completely win games on his own. That's how I think you look at goalkeepers now more than ever with guys like Alisson, you know, guys like uh, Oblak, you know, for instance, as well. The position, you're seeing why certain teams are willing to splash x amount on goalkeepers right but you're also looking at why certain teams are willing to take those risks on the market one being keppa for chelsea to spend that money on keppa and to not get the sort of level of return that liverpool got on allison that speaks volumes as to yes there's a good wide pack of good goalkeepers even in Serie A too especially this season but on the top off the top of your head there's really three that are just like a level above everyone else. And I think that's ultimately what we saw in the final specifically is that people may have overlooked Neuer in that conversation the past mm. couple of years. And I'm sure you guys would agree with that. You know, it's mm. Allison, it's, it's Oblak, it's, you know, at points, David De Gea, although I know we are going to, you know, probably talk about him at some point with one of the questions, but Neuer kind of rolled back the years in this entire season, if you will, for Bayern Munich. And he's, kind of reestablish himself as like, no, 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 I'm, I'm still elite. This is still my position. Yeah. And that, the performance he put on in, in, in the final was, is one of those like legacy encapsulating performances because he has everything else. And to complete the treble in this fashion, the way he did was remarkable. Yeah, I mean, look, Neuer has been amazing all season. Before that, he was badly injured and then rubbish. So it's it, like his level dropped because of the injury. And that's when people start to forget about you or, or you push them down the ranking and, uh, and, you, and you start not considering him to be one of the best right now. It's all fair because he, his level really, really seriously dropped. But earlier in the season when Bayern's level dropped under Niko Kovac, um, and I tell the story a lot, but I was there for the final game. I was in Frankfurt for, for the 5-1 loss that saw Kovac fired. Uh, so I saw them at their absolute nadir, like the worst they got. I mean, how often did Bayern concede five goals? Ridiculous. And Neuer was pretty good that day. And he'd been pretty good that season. And the only reason they were anywhere near the top, anywhere near the top four even, by the time November rolled round, is because Lewandowski scored in every game and Manuel Neuer put out so many fires. So all season long, Neuer has been amazing. And it's been great to watch the team kind of grow with him and sort of it, it sort of twig that actually everybody else needs to up their level and very steadily, uh, you know, Thomas Muller does, then everybody else starts to chip in and the defense sorts itself out. That's been great to see. Uh, but it's, it's, it's okay to, to, to have knocked Neuer out of your, your, your sort of top goalkeepers ranking for a bit before this season because, like, I mean, there's a reason they went out and, and took Alexander Nubel as the backup. They were worried. Mm. They were worried about... Neuer, his age, his injuries, and the fact that his level had dropped. But 
He's answered all of his critics over the last, well, yeah, literally one year, isn't it? Christ, the season starts uh, <laughs> in two weeks. Oh, my God. um yeah i mean noble is another interesting one isn't it he must be sitting there twitter like literally being like oh shit he's good again (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, just before we move on i need to remind you that this podcast is uh supported by the athletic so if you guys do want to get a subscription and get 40 percent off your subscription then you can go over to theathletic.co.uk slash state of play and it costs you basically two pound 99 which is the equivalent i guess to about three pound three dollars fifty maybe matt i don't know if you've been buying anything more expensive than that recently oh uh, yeah I, I need new golf balls i've been losing them quite a bit so uh, yeah i've hit pretty much just golf attire and golf golf gear but, but yeah it's, it's it's a great it's a great great offer i mean I, i've been always talking about not only just the football side of things which is there's so much content in there but you're also getting you know some of the major u.s sports with you know the basketball and the bubble the playoffs are Oh man, did you see Luka Doncic last night? Baseball, NFL, you're getting everything with this package. So make sure you guys sign up through our exclusive link. And um, yeah, once again, appreciate the athletic for the backing over here. Yeah, shout out to Luka Doncic for putting on a show last night as well. Damn, that was crazy. (laughs) Crazy. Um, We've got a load of questions. I guess it's probably smart that we start from a goalkeeping perspective because we've just talked about Manuel Noy for the last 10 minutes. Um, Roberto Grosso, good friend of yours, Matt. Hey guys, would love to know Sam's thoughts on Dean Henderson chances of overtaking David De Gea this season as Man United starter. So obviously he's just signed a new long-term deal. It looks like he's coming back and he's on a decent for a bit of money. Um, they just seem to be giving goalkeepers a lot of money at Man United. Uh, fair enough. What are your thoughts here, Sam? Is this the season we see David De Gea quote-unquote managed out? I think, um, <laughs> yeah, I think Man United have now finally realised that they're going to have to, they're going to have to come up with some kind of plan in case De Gea's slide continues. Because let's be honest, ever since the World Cup in 2018, he's just his level was just dropped and dropped and dropped, um, and it's now becoming a bit of a concern. He ended the season under a real cloud. I, I don't know what's going on with him. Uh, I know I've just spent the last 10 minutes talking about goalkeepers and we're talking about it here, but it's such a specific area. Uh, and such a specific skill set that I never feel 100% comfortable you know, going through the ins and outs of a, of a goalkeeper's performance and, 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 and traits and skill sets like I would with any outfielder. Um, but that's not me ducking the question. That's me saying, I think United are, are smart to basically come up with the only, like the first ever contingency plan they've ever had for this because Sergio Romero, nice dude. Man United fans seem to think he'd walk into any other team in the league, which is ridiculous. He's not good enough to play for Man United on a regular basis. He's, he's a backup and, and he knows that as well. So they need to provide a stimulant and a challenge to De Gea because he doesn't have that from Romero. He doesn't feel threatened by Romero whatsoever. Henderson, back in after two excellent seasons with Sheffield United, the second one being a a close-to-team-of-the-year caliber season uh, in the Premier League, 100 grand a week or more, back in, on the bench. Seriously, give David De Gea a scare. And if he starts to mess up again, put Dean Henderson in, because Dean Henderson is a good player. And if if Sheffield United have gone out and signed Ramsdale for 18.5 million from relegated Bournemouth, that means that they were willing to put up at least 20 million for Dean Henderson. So United have declined a very good offer for a backup player here, right? That could have helped them find 20 million for, you know, Jadon Sancho or whatever, depending on what they're doing with their money. So this is a show of faith in Henderson. And this is a message to De Gea to say, you can't keep messing up. And if, you, and if they said to Henderson, dude, sit here, give you a new contract, we'll compensate you, wait, 
see if David De Gea messes up. And if he does, we will play you. It's the right thing from Henderson's perspective to do because he obviously dreams of a United career. And it's the right thing for Man United as well. So it's about time that they made a contingency plan for this. And if I had to predict, I'd say, yeah, I think we'll see Dean Henderson this season in the league. I think we will. Follow-up question real quickly on that, because we had our most recent video for YouTube with uh, Harry Brooks and, and, of course, Pet here, talking about the, I guess, framework of the Euro 2021 uh, English squad. Is it Nick Pope or Henderson as the, the main goalkeeper? Or who do you prefer up against the two? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not Jordan Pickford, is it? <laughs> so he's, no, he no. was correctly left out of the initial question. I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not particularly sold on Pickford at the moment after the season he's just had. I mean, I guess part of this is let's see what happens this season. But as it, if I had to pick it right now, I would take Nick Pope. Um, I don't think Dean Henderson's even been capped yet. Um, so, like, it's, it's, he's still very new to the group, the stage, the squad all of those things which you need to account for. And Nick Pope is, is very reliable. And I think he's a pretty commanding guy, a very commanding goalkeeper, good air, really big, long arms, like really difficult to get the better of and kept so many clean sheets for Burnley. Obviously the defense is part of it, but he, he pulled his own weight. I'd say Pope is the better keeper. And given that he has it's like five or six caps already, I think he's the pick for now. But Henderson, if he gets into the United side this season and starts to perform, well, we know what that does for international selections, doesn't it, when you start for a top six club. Mm. Mm. Next question we got here for you, Sam. Shifting gears to the blue side of Manchester. This is from Mitchie in the Kitchen. I'm not sure if it's a reference to Mitchie Bacuai. Who knows? Um, <laughs> hey, Sam, I am a huge fan. Love tuning into Hot Mike with BR. Let's say hypothetically that Messi goes to Man City. How would that change the goals of the team and who they buy and sell to prefer excuse me, to prepare for next season. Formation change? Uh, I mean, you, I don't think it's a formation change. Um, I think he could slot into the 4-3-3 on the right side. You, we all know by now that Messi doesn't do, want to do a lot of running. So you'd need someone who does twice the amount of running for him. And luckily, they do actually have a player called Carl Walker, who he will <laughs> do that for you. Um, so that's not a problem. Do you think uh, he could actually go, Sam, this summer? Well, look, I mean... Last week on, uh, I'm personally not best place to, to, to say myself, but what I can say is that like on BR Football Ranks last week, we had Marcelo Beckler, who was the journalist who broke the story that Messi wanted to leave that week. And he's also the same journalist who broke the Neymar to Paris Saint-Germain story. Mm. So there was a bit of credence there. And what we essentially gleaned from that conversation, he came on for like 15, 20 minutes, is that, yeah, Messi's fed up. Yeah, Messi wants to leave. Um... The Kuman chat didn't go very well. Um, <laughs> Do you see all the memes today? Uh, all the kind of um, <laughs> people editing like Kuman onto uh, kind of like gang leaders and like just basically as a hitman, just kind of going after one person after one. <laughs> like he seems to just be culling every single player at Barcelona. Yeah, I mean, it's like if it, obviously it's it's Kuman's job there to go in, I think, and ruffle some feathers and um, and start what is going to be a very unpopular squad upheaval. He's basically the bad man, the bad guy who comes in and goes, right, Busquets, out, Alba, out, Rakitic, out, Suarez, out. You're all on 200, 200 grand a week. You're not performing. You've got to go. He's, that's his job, and he's going he's gonna to be fired after a year, and no one's going to like him, and it's going to be really sad. But he's doing, a really, he's doing a really important thing for Barcelona in the shape of their, of their reformat. But, yeah, Messi's not happy, and Marcelo also told us that Barca would not keep Messi as a prisoner. Um, which means they wouldn't hold him to a 700 million euro release clause. They would, you know, maybe accept something a bit lower. But look, Messi just turned 33 and he doesn't run. 
anymore. He's the best player in the world, in my opinion, but he actually does prove to be a slight tactical issue when building your squad because yeah. the modern game is so clearly built on hard running, team effort, pressing. Take a look at Bayern Munich, literally European champions. Look at Lewandowski and Muller, two of the best attackers in the world again, running their socks off, covering 10K. Muller tracking back and, uh, and boxing people in on the corner to make sure they don't get past the fullback. That is what it takes. And so Pep Guardiola supposedly coaches that same style. So he might have a little issue with Messi if he, if he joined. And he would have to protect him and cover him with a lot of legs in those positions. The other thing he could do, of course, is just play him as a false nine mm-hmm. and reignite the, the false nine from Barcelona in 2009 and 2011. I mean, I'd love to see it. I think Sterling would work really well in that role on the left and Mares or Jesus off the right. Might be a slight problem with Aguero, but you'd be able to get enough legs in midfield to basically cover the whole thing. So there might be some, there might be some, uh, there might be some changes there if it happened. It's still a hell of a long shot, guys. That, that's, mm. that needs to be made clear. And in terms of would that change their goals? Well, yeah, they'd need to win every game, ever. I, I mean, that's the standard would be if you add Messi to, to Guardiola's Man City, like they have to, they can't lose. Like they have to be perfect. That's mm. the standard. Mm. Yeah, it's, it would have to be a quadruple. And, um, you know, I mean, Guardiola, it's, uh, it seems like he has seemed to have had some sort of sticking point with winning the Champions League without Lionel Messi. So maybe the only way he can win it is by getting him back together with Lionel Messi. But maybe, let's yeah. see. Um, we've got three questions here that we've wrapped into one. Uh, which newly promoted team in the Premier League has the best chance of staying up? Who will be the Sheffield United of the season as it pertains to overperforming? And then Miguel Ajay here, who says he's a big fan, been reading your blog posts since 2012. That's a long time, Sam. Oof, Do you think yeah. Leeds United will be avo- uh, able to avoid relegation after being promoted to the Premier League? Why or why not? Yeah, so we've clumped them together because my answer to all of them is Leeds. Um, <laughs> Leeds, 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 and yes. Um, so yes, I think Leeds are going to stay up, and I think Leeds are probably the team that that do a Sheffield United. Um, and this might seem might seem obvious to to Bielsa's and stuff because obviously he's a he's a he's a celebrated coach, and it's the quirky pick to take the, the tactical genius, the guy that sits on the bucket. And Leeds are very obviously Leeds are a very interesting side, and they also won the championship, so it kind of feels maybe like the safest bet. Um, but of the of the promoter sides, they clearly they clearly got something that everybody else doesn't, and this is quite a familiar pattern to me in Premier League play, and it's always shocked me is that the quirky team, the the team that's different, the one that does something slightly out of the box, it takes other sides an unfathomable amount of time to figure them out. Like we're talking about Premier League top tier coaches, scouting staff, and managers, and consistently through the years they have struggled to adapt to the single team that does something a bit different and this season's evidence of that would be Sheffield United's you know overlapping centre-backs and the overloads they create in the wide areas you know teams just didn't figure that out for ages it's like they had their head in the sand the entire time even though they've been doing it in the championship as well you can wind it back to Hull City who came out and played really like bold and brave football in 2008 when really everybody thought because they're newly promoted they should just sit there and defend and people were taken aback by how brave they were and, and how quickly they played and then you've got like Leicester's Leicester 4 4 2 their way to the Premier League title um you know, they sat in a 4-4-2 and counter-attacked into the channels with Vardy for six months before one manager went, hmm, maybe we shouldn't <laughs> give them all that space in behind. It took so long for people to figure this out. It is 
it it shocks me to my core. So there's also the notion of like, oh, they're not that good. They won't keep doing it. It's yeah. kind of like. Um, you know, and sometimes it does happen, you know, you remember that Blackpool team with Charlie Adam where they just looked bloody amazing for like six months and then looked like you could stick like 11 stick men there and they'd get beaten for the next six months. So, um, but, but, but a lot of the times when they are well coached and well drilled and it's not just give the ball to Charlie Adam, and let him shoot, then teams do actually do well in, you know, over a course of the season. You mentioned Leicester there and um, it is going to be strange to see how, how teams adapt to, to Leeds. And do you think because of, Bielsa's big profile that actually they might be more inclined to do their research maybe I mean yeah I mean he's he's already sat in front of a room of journalists and showed and you know after the Derby Spygate thing and, <laughs> and showed people just how specific he is but I still think it will take some time for for te- other teams to realize just just how fluid he is with his uh, his shape changes in his formation just how quick the tempo to his to his team's game is and I think it's I think it will take people by surprise. I think even with all of the hype, the fact that it's Leeds United, the fact that they're back, the fact that it's Bielsa, the fact that we all talk about it, the fact that he's, you know, Pep Guardiola's hero, all this stuff, it will still take teams by surprise because they don't do their research. It's just, it's as simple as that. And, you know, Bielsa's a clever manager. He'll, he'll coach a clever team. For this prediction to come true, they are going to have to sign a couple more players. That needs to happen because today they've, basically been told to give up on Ben White and you know the center backs the defensive line right now doesn't look good but you know two three weeks time get some business done leads and they have every chance of of producing a run the likes of which sort of Sheffield United or maybe Hull from before have done in the past I just think teams really struggle to get to grips with that one strange team and they're so ignorant and so reluctant to really acknowledge that for such a long time that it ends up costing a lot of teams over the first three, four months of the, of the year. Mm. Well, staying in England, we've got one question here from at Pogba FIFA six. That's an interesting handle. Who is your standout upcoming English footballer? Now that's a tough one. Cause you're always like, do I go for someone kind of obvious or do I go for someone really under, a, under the radar and risk that they never ever play a senior appearance? <laughs> Yeah, I know it's a tough one. It's it's getting tougher as well because the 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 caliber of player that you know England is producing is remarkable over the mm. last couple of years, and it's it's only continuing. It's it's exciting for the two people that are English on this podcast. <laughs> um, I mean, so obviously, like your standout English youngster is is probably still Jaden Sancho, but that's way too obvious. Um, also, probably verging on too obvious now is that Jude Bellingham is is amazing. <laughs> um, He's 17 years of age. I think he's going to get called up to the England under-21s next time they play. And he can play like four or five different roles in midfield. He seems to be able to play as a six, an eight, a ten, and a winger. Um, initially, I thought he might look a bit overdeveloped and just was like just looked a bit, a bit big for his age and therefore good. But then the games keep coming, keeps proving himself, and you get these little flicks, these little clever touches, the awareness, the spatial awareness. It's, it's remarkable. And then the other one I'd pick is, is also another quite obvious one, but just because of the run of English players that we have coming through, he's sort of been forgotten about, probably due to his club situation as well, is Harvey Elliott is mm. really good. And people forget or just kind of forget he exists because he doesn't play because, you know, in his position plays Mohamed Salah or Sadio Mane. And yeah, I don't know where the, I don't know where the game time comes from this year either, but every time Harvey Elliott takes to the pitch, he looks like he belongs at a Premier League level already at 17, despite not having the physique really to cope with it. It's all based on technical ability 
uh, and the whip on his left foot is remarkable. He's such a clever player. Uh, I think I think Elliot is great, and I, he probably doesn't get talked about enough just because like he exploded once, and now he's stuck down in the pecking order at Liverpool. Mm. Uh, so he, yeah, but I'd like to pay him his credit there. I think he, he's he's genuinely one of the most promising we have. Mm. Lots of English talent around, but uh, Matt, moving on to Italy, I think we had one Serie A related question that you really wanted to ask. You keep bugging me that we're going to have to ask this one. Yeah, the WhatsApp chat is blowing up. Um, <laughs> so obviously, before we, we recorded here, you you know we uh, had our different uh, club supports in the back, right? You had the Inter shirt on, I had the Milan flag. So I, I want to speak on Inter for a bit here because obviously they have a, a little bit of a coaching predicament here with Conte and whether or not he's going to be staying on as, after one season at the club. <sighs> Let me ask you this. From Inter's, Inter's perspective, they're – probably going to try and target Max Allegri if Conte is given the axe and he does part ways after one season. But I'm speaking more on Conte because we've seen his sort of, I guess, approach and or mindset or overall experiences recently post Juve. They're very short-lived. There's a lot of, he's a lot of fire on the way out. Where would you see Conte going, hypothetically speaking, if he was sacked? Next, in his coaching journey, is it internationally? Because I think Roberto Mancini's done a pretty good job with Italy, and I think he's building something really good there. Do you see it maybe going to a team like Milan, you know, at some point? What do you see for Conte moving forward if he is given the axe? Yeah, I really don't know where this guy fits anymore outside, <laughs> of, outside, of, um, outside of Italy, basically. I, I, I don't know. He's, he's so explosive, so volatile, and... Just, just so you know, I love him to bits. I think he's, I think he's great value, um, and I really like the sides that he creates. And um, I think he's quite amusing to watch on the sidelines. So I'm always down for an Antonio Conte game. But you know, when certain managers feel like they kind of run out of run out of avenues and mm. run out of options, mm-hmm. it's like when Jose Mourinho went to Spurs. Yeah, basically literally, had, I was going to say it. <laughs> he, he, he kind of just had nowhere else to go. Um, although, for what it's worth, when Juve appointed Sarri, I thought. That's a bad idea. And although it's not perfect, Mourinho would actually be a better bet right now. Mm. Um, so that, w- that was still technically... There were a couple things open for Mourinho, but Conte's probably in the same boat where you're like, mm, I don't know where you go from here, bud. So just, 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 just tread lightly because I know he's really annoyed for loads of reasons, but what he's managed to build at Inter and what he actually has at his disposal is a very impressive team. And I know he went mad about the fact that, you know, oh, who am I going to turn to? Stefano Sensi? you know, Nicola Barella, like that sort of thing. It's like, well, turns out Nicola Barella is amazing. Um, because he totally, was like their best player in the yeah. first third I mean, of the season he got as injured, well. Yeah. He got injured, but like the seven games he did play, he was like a tornado of talent. He was incredible to watch. Um, I don't know what the head he's on about most of the time with this sort of thing. And the fact that he called out, like he was like, oh, you know, who do I turn to? Barella from, who, who came from Cagliari? It's like, well, Barella, you know, in that semi-final in the Europa League, he looked like prime Arturo Vidal. The guy doesn't stop running. Gets into the box, offers a goal threat. Ericsson said that he has a heart attack every time he goes in for a tackle, which is, you know, prime Vidal. It's perfect. I mean, I don't know what, he, I don't know what his problem is. He, they, they, they've signed... Uh, there is Marotta, isn't it? Beppe Marotta, the sporting mm-hmm. director from Juve to replicate his old setup. They've bought him Akraf Hakimi, like yeah. one of the world's best wingbacks, for assist tailor made for a system where Hakimi is going to go mad. Like he's basically Mycon 2.0. Everything <laughs> is shaping up. Everything mm-hmm. is shaping up. I think with Juve's relative decline, 
squad muddledness and rookie manager. We don't know how that plays out, but let's say it's, it's a, more of a negative than a positive right now. It's shaping up for an inter-title win if they keep hold yeah. of Lautaro. As long as Conte doesn't spontaneously combust in mid-September <laughs> and just burst into flames. Like, I, I don't know why he's so mad. Because this is a real project and this is something to get really excited about, in my opinion. And I don't just say that because Matt's a Milan fan and I'm sat here in an inter-team. <laughs> it I, does I, always, I mean that. I mean that objectively. It, it does also feel like he has got more his way at Inter than he did at Chelsea. You know, I think at Chelsea, oh, yeah. um, you know, there were uh, Roman Abramovich stopped putting money into the club. I know this summer is distant from, you know, the pandemic. He's obviously stepped in and been like, buy who you want. I'll kind of foot the bill until things return to normal. But at Inter, it's like, oh, I want Victor Moses. All right, here's Victor Moses. I want Ashley Young. Here's Ashley Young. Lukaku, want, they, they, they backed up the truck for Lukaku. I want Lukaku, 70 million euros. I want Alexis fucking Sanchez. And they got him Alexis, literally the most paid overpaid player in world football winter and, right and if you want and him content, even speaking we'll on him. and even speaking on their, their targets i mean if you if you're just if you're buying into the rumors right and obviously confirmed deals akimi's already in the gate and that happened overnight it seemed right mm. back in late june but then you're looking at possibly they're ahead for tonali yeah they're looking at emerson from chelsea mm. then you're looking at you know all these sorts of players that they're looking to supply him with and you're wondering like it's almost like we can't win with this guy. Yeah, and this because was it's the like, well, we... he had with Juve. Well, he didn't get the guys on the way out, and that was kind of what forced him to the exit door, is that he couldn't get the proper guys in the market to build and construct his team. Inter are backing everything up for this guy. And, hey, we're, we're buying into you. We're paying you the good, good wages to coach his team against your rival. You finished second with the club in year one. We're building this great nucleus of players. What more do you want? And maybe there's more things to unpack here. You know, there's been some kind of, theories going on that maybe he wasn't back then there was more of a, a situation with him and his wife and his family and that's something that he wants to take into strong consideration whether or not he wants to move forward with this team but you wonder you know to, to Sam's point like where do you, where would he go here knowing or who which big club would take him on knowing that this is kind of the the way he he leaves these these projects and but, but are you going to back up the truck actually... to invest in a coach that doesn't want to stay beyond one year if he doesn't get everything his way i wouldn't if i'm building a team no but like also how i don't i just don't understand like how he can be um you know displeased when they've made all the signings that are Conte yeah. signings you know victor moses ashley young lukaku yeah. sanchez are all his players and you know they've brought in Beppe morata maybe he doesn't like that because he's like well you know any sporting director or foot, head of football worth salt is definitely not going to sign Ashley Young. It's definitely not going to sign Alexis Sancho. So, so maybe he's like, well, maybe I've got less sway now with the, with the, the guys at the top level. Now I can't bring in fucking, I don't know who else he wants to bring in from whoever he's coached in the past. But Danny Drinkwater. Yeah, Danny Drinkwater or, um, <laughs> you know, a declining Golo Kante. Like, <laughs> who else does he want? Um, it's, it's just a bit strange, in my opinion, at this point. Conte feels, feels a bit weirdly attached to certain, certain ideas and certain players. And um, it always makes me laugh. Someone I know used to work with, used to work for Juventus on their international team. And he used to tell me this story that always used to make me laugh. He, he's basically sat there in the press conference and they're, uh, they're unveiling the, a double unveil of uh, Fernando Llorente and Carlos Tevez. So that summer they managed to sign both of them. And um, on the same day or more or less in the same week, Emmanuel Giaccherini was sold to Sunderland. And um, so they unveil Llorente and Tevez and 
they're like, Conte, you must be really happy with any signings. He's like, it's a bad day. We have lost Giaccarini. <laughs> and they were all just a bit like, yeah, but you've signed Tevez. He's like, no, no. Who then went on to be absolutely <laughs> terrible for Sunderland. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he was just, but Giaccarini was like his war horse, like his, yeah. his malleable Euro piece. Euro 2016. Yeah. It, it, he played him every game pretty much. He's a guy. <laughs> and like, I, I don't know what it is. It's like, it's really hard to please Conte. You could give him Tevez, but he'll mourn the loss of Giaccarini. So it's no guarantee that if you give him everything he wants and Hakimi, he'll be even remotely happy. He's just a, he's just a strange guy. This is why I love him so much because it's, it's great to talk about and there's a lot of drama. Um, but I hope he sticks around because, yeah, add Tonali mm. and Hakimi into this team. It's the strongest midfield in Serie A, I believe. He then has a, a wing back who, again, I think is, is basically Mykon 2.0 at San Siro. And he has Lautaro and Lukaku who combine for like 50 goal involvements a year. This is a Serie A winning side. And a strong in, like, defense too. Yeah, you had like Bastoni rising through the ranks this year. De Vrij, uh, yeah. De Vrij in, in top form. Godin bit hot and cold but he ended the season in, 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 in god mm-hmm. mode like Handanovic is a, such a safe pair of hands like this is the best team in Serie A as long as he doesn't blow it uh, and mm. I think it, I think Inter can win a title with him with these with these pieces he just needs a left wing back I actually think Emerson's crap but um, <laughs> I, but I think um I think, I think uh, he's crap for the record also <laughs> yeah I think he's crap but um if they could find another one um that would be good Biraghi's better than uh, he's better than Emerson no doubt in my mind Ashley Young's better than both <laughs> yeah um, but uh yeah what what maybe one signing away from from a genuine title challenger and I guess it's easy to say that since they finished one point shy but all right favorites for the title one signing C- can I ask you about Pelo quickly like any gut feeling as to I mean really quickly do you think he could? He's going to do a job there? Not a clue. <laughs> <laughs> Not a clue. I don't know, mate. I, I'm looking forward to it. I find these. I always find these quite quite intriguing. Um, I'd implore everybody, unless you were sat there um, with Pirlo while he did his coaching qualifications and marked his assignments, which I'm sure you weren't, uh, to basically withhold on the hot takes because we just don't know what happens. Um, the safest thing to do is to just just withhold your judgment. But the trend of catapulting legendary players into elite club management roles early on is certainly continuing and getting even more dire because you know you've got like Lampard gets one year with Derby Arteta gets an assistant coach role with Guardiola well now you you know Pirlo had nine days with the under 23s Um, so really have no idea who is imprinted on him what his philosophy is you can make guesses based on his play style and I'm happy to guess too but it's sometimes you're just really looking forward to a preseason game, aren't you? Mm. Just to see what happens. And this is one that I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to tune into this one. I'm going out on a limb to say that I think he's going to be quite good. And I don't know why. It's just complete gut feel. <laughs> it's because he's, he's a cool dude. It's because he's a cool dude and he wears sunglasses, yeah. yeah. Uh, moving on from Serie A to La Liga. Got a couple questions here from that side of Europe. Uh, Luke White here says, still a fan of Diego Lainez or is there someone else that's taken your fancy? The Mexican Messi, talk to me, Sam. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do really like Diego Linus. Um, I mean, look, every time I watch a game of football, someone, someone takes my fancy. Uh, <laughs> it, does, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a particularly good player either. I, I, I tend to flip from player to player and get infatuated by different ones. At the weekend, I was watching uh, Stad Rene against Lille and the left back Feitu Moassa. Mm. 
think ended up getting linked to Man United a couple of months yeah. ago, but I, I sort of didn't really take that very seriously at the time. He has a really hunched over running style that makes him look like uh, a bit like Cosimodo, but as a sprinter. And I thought that was unbelievably fun. And now I really like Moasa, he's my favourite left back. So I'm a bit flitty with this sort of thing, but Liners, I don't think it's it's unfair to bring him over and just sort of sit him down a little bit and 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 have him acclimatise. Betis change managers every three months. That can't be easy for an 18-year-old who has moved continents. Uh, but my love for Liners was built on the fact that for Mexico's youth teams, he absolutely ripped England apart. And with the, the, the sight of that frizzy, frizzy ponytail hair just slicing through our fullbacks and, uh, and centre-backs, I was like, wow, this kid's unbelievable. So hasn't quite gone to plan first year in Europe, but uh, it's not all his own fault and I'm sure he'll be fine. Yeah, I think he he's not exactly been in... It was actually a very big surprise to see him go to Betis. I remember at the time him being linked to a host of really big clubs and usually when a, a kid comes out of kind of uh, a non top five league I suppose and kind of sets the world on on fire they get linked to a lot of big clubs and they usually go to kind of a stepping stone club don't they and it's just not really worked out that way for Diego Vanez so far but uh, hopefully he can he's still got a you know age on his side and he can well, still he, do he great things the same position as club legend Joaquin like there's only, there's only so many only so many spots in that or so many minutes to be had in the in the short term and if he's happy to bide his time and learn and acclimatize that's all good with me like we have a fascination with, with, with demanding that 17 and 18-year-olds mm. be put into the first team and played all the time. In some cases, like Mason Greenwoods, they're ready. In some cases, they're not. Uh, Linus yeah. clearly wasn't. And obviously, Joaquin's going to keep playing for another like five to ten years, so he, he, needs, to, <laughs> he needs to be really patient, doesn't he? Uh, <laughs> got a question here from Spider17. Uh, Roy, I think he's a United fan. Considering the, that the whole Valencia team is up for sale, who are the players that Man United and the big clubs should target from them? Oh, man. So, so first of all, I, I find what's happening at Valencia really sickening. Yeah, it's um, sad. And it, I... I I absolutely hate, I hate it. And I even, I've even got to the point where I feel so sorry for the fans and I feel such, such hatred for, for what's happening uh, at a hierarchical level that when they released that amazing new kit, I got super angry because I liked it. Um, <laughs> it's such a nice new kit. I was like, oh, I can't like that because it's Valencia and they're ruining the club. But um, yeah, picking United targets is really hard because it, I don't know what they want. Well, I do. It's British. Um, but there's no like position or role or clear responsibility or like we want this mold of player. We want a player to play this position. He needs to have these traits. It's just, is he under 25? Is he British? Does he have a good character reference? If the answer is yes, fine, we'll bid 10 million. It's that kind of thing. So I don't really know where to go with that. I like, obviously they want Sancho, but is that because they want that type of winger or is it because he is a superstar and because he's English if they can't get Sancho do they want a Sancho like winger as if they do then the closest thing in existence probably is Marcus Edwards you know former Spurs player who's now at Vitoria Guimaraes in Portugal profiles almost exactly the same as Sancho just not as good um so Marcus Edwards is the shout but he's not a Valencia I there is no player at Valencia who I'm like oh yeah he'd definitely be good for United because I don't know I don't know what they want they could buy into potential uh, someone like Lee Kang in but he has some serious discipline issues to go with his technical talent so maybe call it off on that one Jose Gaia would be great I think they miss 
They miss so much when Luke Shaw's not in the side because Brandon Williams is right-footed and only passes sideways or backwards. He doesn't give them a balanced attack. He doesn't hit the byline. He doesn't give them that extra edge in attack. But apparently, Jose Gaia is the only player that's not for sale and he's been made captain. So that doesn't help me either, does it? So where am I with it? Um, I just looked down the list. Kondogbia. He's good. He, he wouldn't cost that much. They need a midfielder because they can't rely on the same three. I'll go Kondogbia. But really, it's hard because I don't know what United want and they don't know what they want. Mm, mm. I, think, uh, I think it's Sancho a bust for them. I, I think I keep saying that there isn't even a player the rung below that United to go for. Well, I think there was. It's very hard. I think there was. And this is where, this is where um, I say was, this is where transfer sagas really bite you. I think the player on the rung below that was somewhat similar, not quite, but close enough, was Ferran Torres. Hmm. And he's gone to Man City because United have spent three months trying to negotiate a deal for Sancho. So if they don't end up getting Sancho, then next on their list should have been Torres. Mm. And they've missed him. He's already, he's already been in Manchester three weeks. He just signed for the other club. Um, and this is, this is when these things really start to backfire. Um, so, yeah, it's difficult. Mm. Well, I think that might be all we've got time for, to be honest with you, Sam. But it's been fantastic having you on for the last six minutes. I really, really enjoyed it myself. And um, where can people find out more about you? Uh, you can listen to the BR Football Rex podcast, which is obviously available on all good podcast providers. Uh, I'm on Twitter, Football, which is T-I-G-H-E, and Instagram is BRSamTai as well. Uh, there are some hot takes. There are some stone cold takes. But it's uh, almost always about football. I don't really tweet or talk about anything else. Well, if you're a football fan, definitely check him out. If you're listening to this podcast and you haven't followed him already, what are you waiting for? Matt, where can people find out more about you? guys can follow me on twitter at matt underscore santangelo yeah of course same thing with sam hot takes banter memes all the good stuff and uh, make sure you guys are subscribed to our podcast on all the major platforms make sure you guys subscribe to our newly created youtube channel we have a couple videos up there with harry brooks some really good stuff and um yeah once again thanks for the support and you can find me at pet barisha p-e-t-b-e-r-i-s-h-a on twitter i'm probably talking about how much i hate arsenal football club um as a you know wounded arsenal fan after so many years and you can find us at state of play pod on twitter instagram youtube and all that good stuff leave us a review give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening on and thank you very much for listening have a great day